Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of best-selling author and award-winning environmental journalist Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. Craig, are you a country music fan at all? You love music. What about country music? Uh, you know, I was overexposed to it as a child. Um, <laughs> so there are things in it that I like. I, you know, I, you, you never get over hearing Loretta Lynn singing Fist City. No, that's a good um, one. That's a good one. And, if- uh, and and there's a lot of, there's some of the new stuff I like, too. I like Nico Case. For okay. Instance. She's got a great voice. All yeah. right. One of my favorites all time, of course, is Willie Nelson. And one of my favorite Willie Nelson songs is The Last Thing I Needed the first thing this morning. And that song title reminds me of a recent article you wrote in the Florida Phoenix. Because reading this, considering the war on nature that the Trump administration has launched into, was literally the last thing I needed the first thing this morning. So tell me and tell everyone else about the East Collier Multi-Species Habitat Conservation Plan. To find the conservation part, you might need a fine-tooth comb. Um, basically, it's a big development plan uh, for a big chunk of what's left of panther habitat in Collier County. Um, a coalition of 11 landowners have kind of pieced their land together and mm-hmm. proposed building a brand-new town out there in the middle of nowhere, along with sand and gravel mines, 54-hole golf course. I mean, it's just this huge, huge project that they want permits to do over the next 50 years and it's in an area for uh, groundwater recharge and things like that. And because of the pandemic, you know, our economy is, has a bit of a has hit a bit of a speed bump. And so the president signed an executive order, as he often does, mm-hmm. in this case, declaring that uh, federal agencies should roll back a whole bunch of regulations that and, might and get by, in the way of. And by whole bunch, so, people might think, what is that? A dozen, two dozen, six hundred, yeah, six hundred. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and in this case, uh, the one in question is the uh, in the Endangered Species Act and the National Environmental Policy Act, where the Fish and Wildlife Service is supposed to review the impact that a particular project has on an endangered species. And mm-hmm. so, they said we're going to put this particular project on the fast track based on this executive order. So basically, they're given these wealthy and powerful landowners in Collier County uh, a speeded-up review for their project. And my question was, why? Because construction is the one industry in Florida that has not been hurt by the pandemic. It doesn't need any help at all. Mm -hmm. And for helping folks along here, Collier County, southwest Florida, it's Naples, but it is also home to Picayune Strand State Forest, uh, Faxahatchee Strand State Forest, the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge, the Big Cypress National Preserve, the Audubon Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary, which we've talked about before with the ghost orchid. This is the home of the Florida Panther. This is not the outskirts, the edges, ancillary adjacent. This is it. And this 45,000-acre project is essentially bullseye into this uh, last remaining habitat, which is chilling if you love panthers like we do, but more so if you're one of the 200 panthers remaining in the wild. Well, and the other thing, too, is, you know, why should they get special treatment when everybody else has to follow the rules? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's a question of fairness as well as a question of whether this is breaking the law, too. Yeah. The Newtown, reading from Craig's FloridaPhoenix.com article, The new town, consisting of thousands of new homes and businesses, is just part of what owners have planned for their 45,000 acres. Like you said, they want new sand and gravel mines. That's great for 
home resale and property values of 54 whole golf course new roads uh, to accommodate an expected 300,000 residents this is not a little enclave we're not talking about a cul-de-sac here we are literally talking about dropping a town the size of Gainesville and Ocala into panther habitat yeah it's, it's big it's big um it reminds me of one of the more distressing tales you told in in the great book cat tale about how florida gulf coast university came to be which if i recall correctly was again prime panther habitat in this area and one of the descendants of ben hill griffin just decided he had this land and wanted to make a profit out of it and develop it and and literally and figuratively bulldozed it through and over panther habitat tell folks uh, that story before we uh, get to this week's guest Basically, there were there were several choices for the location of this university, and the the board of trustees picked absolutely the worst one, uh, environmentally speaking, because uh, it was smack dab in the middle of panther habitat. Panthers had actually been recorded crossing that land, uh, and also a lot of it was wetlands. Uh, in fact, there was some suggestion that the owner uh, probably couldn't have developed it, but he he donated it to the state so they could build a university there. Subsequently, Florida Gulf Coast University was so. It was so soggy out there that students actually called it mildew you for a while. <laughs> um, Panther biologists in Florida with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recommended turning down the permit, saying this is vital land for panthers. Then Senator Bob Graham and basically some, some strings were pulled, and uh, Graham arranged for the uh, representatives of the owner and people from, from Lee County uh, who really wanted the university built there to meet with higher-ups in Atlanta in the regional office, and subsequently they shot down the folks in Florida, the federal biologists in Florida, and said Florida will be developed, and they approved the permit. That is from Craig's great book, Cattail, which is in many ways the inspiration for this podcast, and you can hear that story in our introductory episode. The Trump administration easing, erasing, or overlooking environmental regulations to push forward projects is nothing new. This is something I've learned recently. The border wall has overruled 40 federal environmental laws in Arizona and 30 in California to uh, dig that gash through the desert there. And again, we're talking about bedrock environmental laws like the Endangered Species Act, as you mentioned, which is the question here in Collier County. But the Environmental Protection Act, the Clear Air Act, the Clear Water Act, it is a laundry list of environmental regulations that he has essentially done away with in Florida, in Arizona, in California, in Alaska, in Wyoming, everywhere this administration's war on nature is taking place. And it's um, unprecedented and it's scary. And for those of us who love wild places and wild animals, hopefully it will end not long after November. Something else that scares the mafia, Craig and Scott Deach is the author of Cigar City Mafia, a complete history of the Tampa underworld. Bootleggers, gambling, ringleaders, arsonists, narcotics dealers, and gang members, a variety of characters flourished in the era known as Prohibition in Tampa, Florida, was where they battled for supremacy of the criminal underworld. You can read this book and purchase it on Amazon.com. 
Scott, let me start off by asking, how many books have you written total about uh, mafia-related subjects? I'm currently working on book number eight. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. So what, what got you interested in this particular topic? So my stock answer when everyone asked me, hey, how come you're so interested in the mafia is, uh, well, I grew up in New Jersey, so it's kind of <laughs> genetic predisposition. Uh, my grandfather on my dad's side was a, was a small-time bookmaker. But really, after I saw Goodfellas in the movies, like around 1990, I started, I'm like, oh, I want to read the book it was based on. So that got me started interested in reading about the mafia. It's about 1995, right when the web just started you know, emerging. Uh, I met a historian from England on some like real rudimentary mob page. And he said, hey, I see you're, I moved to uh, to St. Pete at that time. And he said, I see you're down in the Tampa area. He said, I have copies of the Kefauer committee hearings from Tampa. And I didn't really know much about organized crime here at that time. I mean, I'd heard the name Traficane and such, but he sent the Kefauver Commission hearings down. I started reading, hearing all these, or reading about all these stories about gangland killings and police corruption and all this stuff. And I'm like, ooh, this is really interesting. So somewhere along the line, just doing research on my own as a hobby, uh, I came up with the bright idea of, hey, I'm going to write a book. That shouldn't be too hard. So <laughs> that kind of started it. Now, so, Cigar City uh, Mafia was your first one, right? Yeah, Cigar City Mafia was the first one Yeah, that came out in, uh, in 2004. That's about the, the mob in Tampa, particularly Ybor City. Yeah, that's where the core of it starts in Ybor City, moves out through Tampa, and then kind of um, kind of allusions to some of the activities in South Florida, which um, the Tampa mob were involved in as well as, as mobsters from all over the country. How come Tampa became such a hot spot for mob activity? You know, you had a core group of, of Sicilian immigrants here and that came to Tampa from a couple small villages in, in Sicily, um, like Alessandria della Roca, Santo Stefano, Argento province. And you see some of these guys that came over to the United States were already affiliated with with mafia activity in Sicily. And you see a core group of these alliances or these these mob figures that settled in New Orleans, Tampa, uh, New York, Birmingham, Alabama, that were all kind of connected. So especially in the last few years with, with the this kind of surge in genealogy research. There have been some mob researchers that I know that really work on kind of the, the, the beginnings of the mob uh, and mafia activity in, in America. And that's that's kind of how you see it start. And you see around the early 1900s, especially in Ybor City, which was kind of where a lot of this was concentrated, the, the immigration into the Tampa area, uh, the start of what's called blackhand activities. So it was, um, you know, they would rob an Italian merchant and send his family a ransom letter, you know, Give us a hundred dollars, or you know, we're going to kill your your husband. And they would imprint a black hand on it. It was kind of low level street extortion uh, activities, and you see this playing out in Sicilian immigrant communities around the United States. What kind of kicked it to that next level of being more organized crime uh, that we are more familiar with was pretty much the same as it was in a lot of the rest of the country was the advent of prohibition. Now, before that, though, there was also another element, right? Belita. Well, yeah, absolutely. Belita, um, around that time in the early 1900s, you have the introduction of Belita, which is, um, you know, becomes a very popular illegal gambling game in, in Tampa, which is never fully legal, but is, is just played everywhere. Um, this generates you know, millions of dollars for organized criminals and, and crime syndicates that are operating in Tampa. And and also starts a little bit of, of a war for control of this. And, and so you start seeing kind of a, 
internal strife beginning in the late 1920s um, on the streets of Ebor. What What is the game? Explain how it works. There's a couple versions of Bolita. The, the original game of Bolita was you would have a Bolita set of 100 balls. They would be numbered 1 to 100, made out of wood or, or sometimes ivory. The, the sets I've seen have been, been predominantly wood. And you would go to this casino where they would throw Bolita, and you'd have a guy at the at, up in front, and everyone would bet on which number would be selected. He would put those balls into a bag, shake the bag up, and toss it into the crowd. Someone would grab onto it. One of his associates would go out and, and cut the bag, and whatever number they grabbed onto, that would be the winning Belita number. And they would do this a few times over the night. Interesting postscript to that, there, there are a few Belita sets in Tampa, one of which is at USF in Tampa. When I had seen it, I started picking up some of the numbers, and there's a few of them that are really heavy. And what they would do is fill them with lead. So when they would shake the bag or throw the bag, those heavier numbers would tend to get selected. Then it transforms into somewhere, it's hard to say exactly when, but certainly by the early 1940s, Belita becomes more of a a catch-all phrase for the numbers racket. You know, instead of going to Publix and playing your pick three or something, you can go to this uh, Belita guy on the street corner and do it. And um, there were variations. There was a game called Cuba where if you if you bet on that, they would take the last two or three numbers from the Cuban National Lottery that was uh, run every Saturday at noon in Havana. Uh, some guys would take like the last two numbers of the stock market average. That would be their winning Belita number. So it was pretty popular and, and kind of disseminated throughout Tampa. You mentioned the 1950s Cafaver. I hope I'm saying that properly. Cafaver. Cafaver. Committee. Fill our listeners in on what exactly that was and, and what its purpose was. The Cafaver Committee was probably the first time that there was a serious look from, from the federal government at this this concept. There's an idea of, of a nationwide syndicate of organized crime in the United States. So there was a senator from Tennessee, Estes Kefauver, who went around the country to, to major cities and was looking at uh, ties between uh, political corruption, uh, organized crime, labor, racketeering. And what made these become famous, there were, there were a couple things, but one of the biggest is, is part of them were televised. And it was one of the first times that yeah. one of these kind of hearings was, was played on television. But in December 1950, the committee set up shop here in Tampa. And we're coming up to the 70th anniversary of of those hearings here. And, you know, they interviewed uh, Charlie Wall, who was like one of the first real kingpins of organized crime. He had kind of retired from the rackets, but he talked about Belita back in the day. You had information about, you know, politicians taking payoffs and the sheriff of Hillsborough County at the time, Hugh Culbreth, being actively involved in Belita operations. So it was... It was really kind of an eye opener for the for the citizens of Tampa, who really got an inside look at how ingrained organized crime had become in the city. Wasn't Curtis Hickson, the mayor, uh, also taking payoffs from from the gangsters? Yeah, there was testimony that that they were paying off the mayor, Curtis Hickson. There was testimony about uh, State Attorney Rex Ferrier, um, some allusions to corruption in governor races. So, you know, typical Florida stuff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, that, and that leads to my next question: Was Tampa any more? prone to this sort of behavior than any other place in Florida, or was it, it pretty much a, across the board, this sort of activity taking place? Well, Tampa was was the hotbed, certainly in the, the early years. And then as you know, Miami and South Florida started to grow, and you had mob figures like Meyer Lansky moving their operations down there part-time, you start seeing some of that same stuff coming out. Um, in fact, there were key fiber hearings in Miami 
And then later on, there was a crime commission formed there looking at the influence of organized crime and political corruption in South Florida. Tampa definitely was was a was an epicenter. The other thing that, that kind of set Tampa apart, you know, it was a small city for, for a good, you know, chunk of the early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And um, that kind of, you know, made it even more prone to, to that kind of activity. But certainly Miami and South Florida um, did a pretty good job of trying to catch up with that in, in <laughs> kind of the latter half of the 20th century. Tampa's Don was Santo Traficante Jr. And then Meyer Lansky was sort of in charge of South Florida. That's how they split it up. Am I right? Yeah. So in Tampa, you have a couple bosses before him. You have a guy, Ignacio Italiano, who's kind of a big power. He comes to notoriety in 1928. He's arrested in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, at a meeting of bootleggers uh, at the Hotel Statler. And you have two guys from Tampa there. You have Ignacio Anton uh, Italiano and Joe Vaglica. You have Ignacio Antonori, who's kind of like the, the head of the mafia in, in the 1930s. And then he's killed in 1940. And then the Traficantes kind of come to dominate organized crime. First, um, Santo Traficante Sr., and then he hands the reins over to his son around 1950. Santo Jr. controls organized crime in Tampa. He has, you know, sizable holdings in Cuba, becomes very involved in the casino industry in Havana. And then also, Meyer Lansky is operating in South Florida. But but the other thing that's interesting about the Miami, South Florida area is it, it becomes known as an open territory or an open city. So you have mafia figures from uh, all over the country relocating or opening up operations in South Florida, uh, including Santo Traficante, members of the Tampa mob. They start having operations in South Florida, in the Miami area. Uh, in fact, I'm going to quote a number around, around 1978, there was a governor's report on organized crime. They identified over 600 mafia members and associates from every mafia family around the country hmm. that were either living in or operating in South Florida. Wow. Wow. How connected, and you kind of answered it, how connected were these families in Tampa to what was taking place in New York or more broadly across the country? Uh, extremely connected. There were, there were a lot of connections, e- even going back to the 20s and 30s between, say, like the, the Antonori family and gangsters in Kansas City. Uh, the Traficantes had close connections with mafia figures in New York and Chicago. Those connections existed all the way back through the early years. And then when Santo Traficante Jr. takes over, you know, he's at the ill-fated Appalachian meeting in 1957, where representatives from all the mafia families go to this upstate New York house for a big meeting, and it gets interrupted by the state police. <laughs> so th- there's definitely a lot of very close connections between what was going on in Tampa and Florida and the rest of the country. Traficante and Marlancy, they're running the, the casinos in Cuba also, right? Yeah. You know, when the mafia started moving into Cuba and setting up operations, the New York families kind of get all the, you know, the notoriety, you know, Lucky Luciano, you know, famously after he gets deported to Italy, shows up back in Havana and Meyer Lansky becomes probably the best known, biggest mobster operating in the pre-Castro era in Cuba. But Santo Traficante Jr. and mobsters from Tampa also had significant operations. And one thing that kind of gave them an advantage, and it might sound like really like small, but it was it was huge, is that, you know, growing up in Ybor City, they grew up in a community that was Sicilian, Spanish, and Cuban. So they understood the culture, and they also understood the language, and they spoke Spanish. So that's something that Meyer Lansky and the guys from New York really didn't have that connection. So that was one of the reasons that, that Traficante was able to gain a pretty strong foothold down there in Havana. 
did Traficante or any of the other heavy-duty figures in Tampa have any of these sort of palatial estates that we've come accustomed to some of the, the the mobsters having and obviously from the movies we we have these images in our head of of you know Don Corleone's uh, house and people coming to greet him in the big lawn and all that sort of thing what sort of uh, lifestyle were they living in the Tampa area pretty low key really? <laughs> if you look at yeah if you look at some of the homes that some of the guys owned or just you know, a lot of more than 1950-style, you know, Florida ranch houses. Some of the the older mobsters had some a little bit nicer homes. There's a couple homes right off of uh, North Boulevard, which is just north of downtown Tampa. You know, 1920s, a little bit bigger homes, but they really kept that close to their vest in terms of um, of downplaying those trappings of wealth. They own some property on the beaches down on St. Pete Beach. There's a, there were a couple bigger homes that you know were kind of weekend homes, but they were pretty low key. In, in fact, um, one of the things I found was uh, one of Santo Traficani's cars in the 1960s was a Dodge Dart. And if you can think of the, I mean, the most unmodster like car. To have, uh, yeah. So they yeah they they didn't really show off too much um, mm. when he was in Miami. Traficani was a little bit more of a man about town, and he would go to the nightclubs and the Fountain Blue and the Eden Rock. But yeah, they were they were pretty low key here. Hmm. Pretty low key. What level of street violence was there? Again, when we think of the mafia, we think of St. Valentine's Day massacre and you know the hits in the Italian restaurant and that sort of thing. To what extent did that sort of activity take place in Tampa? There, there were. Uh, uh, a couple periods. One was about 1928 through about 1940, and another one was in the 1950s, where you had a spate of, of gangland killings in Tampa. A lot of them were out in the open. Um, most of them involved sawed-off shotguns, and th- it became known locally as the era of blood. That was kind of a term that was coined by some of the newspapermen at the time. I did find a magazine article that came out in 1950, and it was, it was part of a pulp book called America's Cities of Sin. And there was a chapter on Ebor City, and the, and the title of the chapter was Hell Hole of the Gulf Coast. <laughs> so, it was, so it definitely helped, you know, sell the, the, the sensationalism. You see a little bit of violence in the 70s, too. There was a little bit of, uh, of, a, of a war for control of some of the, um, the strip clubs and the, and the lounges, and that was kind of tied into um, narcotics and cocaine. Mm-hmm. But most of the violence associated with organized crime w- was 30s and in, then again in the 50s. Yeah. Why did it peter out? When did it peter out? Uh, how did that take place? You know, you start seeing it start to peter out kind of after Santo Traficante Jr. dies in 1987. And then um, certainly by the turn of the 2000s, there's not many guys left. Most of them are older. They're investing in legitimate businesses. There's there's not as much um, opportunity for the money makers. You know, Belita's gone. Now you have the Florida lottery. So, you know, you don't need Belita. Mm-hmm. Florida was never a big union state, so you don't have the labor racketeering. So a lot of them, you know, shift over to either white collar, more white collar stuff, or even totally into legitimate businesses. You know, one of the real interesting things about Tampa, more so than other cities, is it wasn't, there was some law enforcement effort and, you know, the FBI, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, local law enforcement definitely kept an eye on these guys. But it wasn't really like all of a sudden there was a big bust and, you know, a dozen of them went away. It just kind of sort of through attrition kind of petered out. Before we leave off, I just want to mention my favorite Meyer Lansky story, which is, uh, I guess, at some point they were running a, a pretty big open casino in South Florida and um, some good guy. 
government people got a an injunction to shut the place down. And so Lansky's people came to him and said, what are we going to do? And he looked at the order and he said, here's what we're going to do. And he gives the instructions. And basically they tore the place down and then rebuilt it on the next property over. <laughs> you know, put back up as if nothing had happened. And the government people were like, okay, we can't, we can't beat them. We give up. Yeah. Yeah, that that sounds about right. What do you think the general public's biggest misconception is about the mafia generally? Not not specific to Tampa, but you've written books about the the mafia all across the country. What does the public get wrong about organized crime? This concept of guys kind of becoming snitches and turning and becoming informants, a lot of people say, well, you know, the old timers, they would never do that. But as more stuff comes out, we're finding that, that a lot of them did talk to law enforcement, even way back in the, in the day. Sometimes it was to their advantage to like, hey, cop, I'll give you some information about my competition over there, but you turn a blind eye to what I'm doing. So there was always kind of this little bit of cat and mouse game. And I think this concept of omerta, which they call it, of basically keeping your mouth shut, you know, it plays good in the movies, but when it really got down to the street level, we're, we're finding out more and more families had a lot more guys talking to the FBI and cops than, than we had previously thought. The, the other one, kind of getting to your point earlier about, you know, the big palatial house is kind of this godfather thing is, um, you know, a lot of the old guys really, especially the old bosses that were very successful, like Traficani or Carlo Gambino or some of these, um, even though they would occasionally show the trappings of wealth, they definitely were wary of like getting caught on wiretaps. So there was probably more of a street smarts to that older generation than there were kind of, you know, the ones you see out and about now. He is Scott Deitch. You spell that D-E-I-T-C-H-E. He has written a number of books, including Cigar City Mafia, about organized crime, the latest Garden State Gangland. You can find all of those at Amazon.com. Thank you so much for your time today, Scott. This has really been enjoyable. Before we go, can we talk about movies for just a second? Sure, um, absolutely. Goodfellas has a famous scene in, in Tampa. Is that yes. is that based in fact? Where they, uh, that is that is based in fact. And yeah. this is the one where they shave the lion, is that right? They threaten to feed him to the lion. Three feet, so okay. It's a zoo, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that did happen. Um, the, 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 the real-life characters, Henry Hill and Jimmy Burke, did fly down to Tampa, and there was a guy there that owed him money. They were involved in a, um, a sports betting operation with two associates of the Tampa mob, and they flew down to Florida, and they basically kidnapped a guy and then beat him up in the back of a, uh, of a bar called the Sharpal Lounge, which is located right across the street from Bush Gardens. <laughs> but according to Henry Hill, it was the old Tampa Zoo, which is now Zoo Tampa at Larry Park, where they supposedly fed him to the lions. It's a little vague whether that part of it really happened, but you know, I, I always say if if it's a good story, you know, we'll go with it. Absolutely. <laughs> but um, but <laughs> the truth is they they definitely did come down to Tampa. They definitely did beat a guy up, and the guy's sister did turn them all into the FBI, and they all ended up getting convicted. <laughs> that is true. And the wasn't, and the Charpal Lounge was actually owned by some mob associates, wasn't it? Yeah, the Charbonnier brothers, Luis and Raul, and they were the two guys that were involved in this sports betting operation. There were a lot of Tampa ties there. And then for for people who are familiar with the Godfather movies, Hyman Roth was based on Meyer Lansky, right? Yeah, yes, the, the character, yeah, is definitely based on Meyer Lansky. Fantastic. Scott, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Scott. Absolutely, this was great. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. Craig, what's your favorite mob movie? I'm going to be wishy-washy. Uh, I, I love Goodfellas. Goodfellas is just great. Absolutely. Um, and, and not just for the Tampa scene. Godfather 1 and 2 are classics. I actually love... A, 
you may not have even heard of this one, a, a British movie called The Long Good Friday. I have not. Starring Bob Hoskins as a, as a mob boss in London. And suddenly things are going horribly wrong for him, and he's determined to figure out what's going on. And uh, Helen Mirren is his mistress, hmm. and uh, it's just a great—it's a great acting performance. And it, I love a, I love a movie where you can't tell where the plot's going to go, and this one takes a total left turn. Wow! wow. And uh, I really like that. I will throw uh, recognition in for Casino, which I love, but The Departed, which is Boston Mafia, Jack Nicholson and uh, Leo DiCaprio. Matt Damon, is one of my five favorite movies. I, I think the acting, the storytelling, Mark Wahlberg is in that. The ebbs and flows of that movie just blow my mind. And uh, it is certainly a rich body of um, work to choose from. Why do you suppose mob movies and the mafia interest people so much? I think there's a sense that they get away with doing the things we would like to do. There it is, yeah. You know, that they yeah. uh, they can they can commit all kind of crimes and get away with it, at least for a while. <laughs> but, of mm-hmm. course, they may they may pay for it in other ways, as Henry Hill discovered. Yeah. Hey, Goodfellas. Yeah. Welcome to Florida. 